of our reading this morning, we're back in Mark's Gospel, Mark uh, chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we'll read from uh, verse uh, 1 together. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man's son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many there who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you have given us your word. You are a God who has spoken to us. You've not left us in the dark. And so we pray this morning that we might know light 
upon your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds, that your word would indeed be a light unto our, our path, a lamp to our feet. Uh, Lord, we pray that you might give us ears to hear. Speak to us now, we ask, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. A friend of mine was telling me uh, earlier this week uh, that they had a power cut uh, one night. I wonder if you did with all the storms uh, that uh, we had. And we take it for granted, don't we, that we just have the electric on all the time. We flick a switch and on comes the light. It, it really is quite a remarkable thing. Because only a hundred years ago or so, that was not a common experience. I looked up this week that in the UK in 1919, 6% of all houses in the UK uh, were wired up to the national grid and could flick on a light switch to get uh, some electricity. By the 1930s, that grew really quickly to, to 60%. Maybe you remember visiting relatives in the past and they didn't have electric uh, in, in their homes life before that. It involved doing as much as you could in daylight. And then when the darkness came, you do as much as you could around the fireplace uh, for light and for warmth. Maybe you had uh, some candlelight or an oil lamp as well to light your home, to read dimly or, or to work. That's how life was. And then when the light bulb was invented and those electrical generating plants were invented, lighting in the home, like we've got here this morning, it changed forever. And before long, the electric light that was common in every home, as it is in yours this morning, across the country, and a whole new way of life began. A way of life that we'd never go back to the old ways of doing things with a fireplace and a candle as the only source of light. The arrival of that electricity, it changed things as society knew it. And it is that thought of something new changing everything that we see in our passage here this morning in Mark. As we're continuing on in Mark 2, we're seeing some, some key themes repeating themselves, drawing our attention uh, to some vital aspects of the ministry of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've seen in previous weeks, we see hammered home again uh, this morning, where Jesus is questioned about fasting. You might remember last week, we saw Jesus call Levi, uh, the tax collector, or Matthew, as, as we know him, to follow him. And despite his sins, despite his terrible past, Jesus calls Levi to follow him. And uh, in that account there, we, we saw last week... The ministry of, of Jesus uh, exemplifying the, the, the unique message, the, the grace of God illustrated in, in that closing verse we thought on in verse 17. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And we saw how Jesus Christ came to make strangers into friends. He came to remove the barriers that our sin presents. To build a bridge for us that we might enter into the kingdom of God, that we might, by simple faith in him alone, be a part of his people. And we saw that it is all undeserved kindness. It is all by the grace of God that we might know fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. We saw that true Christian living involves being together, eating together, enjoying gracious fellowship of forgiven sinners. It's all of scandalous grace. And in this next encounter, we read in verses 18 to 22, we see, again, this message of grace really emphasized. And so I want us to see that this morning. I want us to see that Jesus brings a new message. 
something that had never been heard before. Jesus brings a new message, and he does that as he answers a question. And he answers this question with, with a few pictures. And so I want us to examine this response this morning and see this, this new message he was, he was bringing, uh, something that had never been said in this exact way before, there in Mark 2 and to us here uh, this morning. And so firstly then, in verses 18 to 20, let's see that Jesus is the centre of true religion. Jesus is the centre of true religion. And I'm a little reluctant almost to use that word religion because Christianity is unique because it is all of God. While all other religions of the world that there are this morning, countless number of them, they were at some point uh, along the line, they were made up by humanity. But let's go with it because we'll see that if you want to know God, if you want to in any way say you believe in God, If you are looking to anything else, or indeed anyone else other than the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then whatever religion you may or may not follow, you're sadly misunderstood. But this morning can act as a great corrective to your life, as you can come to know life as it is meant to be lived, in knowing Jesus Christ himself. And so let's get into our passage this morning. Let's see what's going on here, as Mark sets the scene for us in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now this probably seems quite a distant issue for us. It's maybe not something we are familiar with. And so we might be wondering, well, what is all this fuss about fasting? Well, this act as a good example of what the Pharisees, they are some of the religious leaders of the day, it shows us what they had done to the law of God that he had given in the first place. You might remember from last week, we saw the Pharisees at Levi's house, and they are the really serious, devout religious type. Their name actually means separated ones. And they viewed those who don't take the law seriously and the traditions seriously, like Levi, we saw they treat such people with great disregard. And remember, what we've got before us in the first five books of the Old Testament is uh, the law of God, the, the, the Torah is the Hebrew word. And you may or may not know that God said to his people uh, there uh, back in Leviticus 16, verses 29 and 30, that for one day, in the whole year, on the Day of Atonement, you must fast. You must deny yourself food for one whole 24 hours per year. That's what God's law said. But by the time of Jesus, the really serious religious Jews were fasting two days a week. Mondays and Thursdays, if you're interested. And in the minds of these people, Jesus and his followers, they should be doing the same. Now, given all that detail on fasting, what's important is this. What was going on here was that by the time of Jesus, through the religious zeal of these Pharisees, conforming and keeping to all these legal prescriptions of the law, as well as all their extra traditions, while keeping those things, had replaced the attitude of heart. So instead of trying to keep the law out of right motive, keeping the laws had become a way of being outwardly decent, And showing yourself to be a good person in the community. And in so doing, the Pharisees had distorted the true purpose of the law. Because the law cannot make us good. It can only show us the standard of God and reveal to us our inability to keep it 
perfectly. But all that said, here in verse 18, it's not the Pharisees actually asking Jesus the question, is it? It's just some people, we're told, everyday folk who are interested in why Jesus and his disciples aren't doing what all the other religious types were doing. And this tells us, doesn't it, that there was an expectation maybe that they should have been fasting and suggests that they think, well, if Jesus and his followers are to be taken seriously, well, then they better give more attention to this fasting. And so what are we to make uh, of all this? It seems quite distant to us in our 21st century uh, context. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, look with me in verse 19. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. So use the first picture in our passage. It's one of a bridegroom, one of a groom at a wedding. And the answer Jesus gives is a new message. It's full of helpfulness here. Notice, though, he doesn't say fasting is bad. He doesn't say you're too serious in fasting and they should tone it down a bit. But to help us make sense of this, we need to know that fasting in the Bible is generally connected with mourning or deliberately humbling ourselves before God. And the only other times you might find fasting in the Bible is in response to judgment or to some disaster of some kind. And so in light of what Jesus is saying, why should my disciples fast at all while I am here? That's what Jesus is saying. That would be like not eating at a wedding. You wouldn't starve yourself at a wedding, would you? To be honest, when we go to a wedding, I usually find the gap between the service and the food so big that I take some snacks for the car because I've got an appetite like a teenager. But a celebration like this in a typical Jewish village, a wedding in the day of Jesus, it was seven days long. That's a lot of round-the-table small talk, isn't it? But in all seriousness, friends and guests, they had no responsibilities. They had a week of celebrations to simply enjoy all of the, the festivities together. There's loads of food, loads of wine, lots of singing and lots of dancing in the house and in the streets around. There would be no thought of fasting in such a happy moment in the life of, of a community like that. It would be absurd to suggest, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to celebrate. And so as Jesus speaks in this way, he's illustrating to us again something of who he really is. Something of his true identity. So said, Jesus doesn't complain about fasting per se. He says in verse 20 that there'll be a time to fast, and we'll think on that in a moment. But here, the point is this. The difference between the followers of Jesus and disciples of anyone else is all to do with the attitude shown towards Jesus and his ministry. Jesus describes his mission to earth as a wedding. He's the bridegroom, and his disciples are the guests of the bridegroom. And as we've already said, a wedding is not a time to abstain, but it's a time to enjoy, it's a time to celebrate. And that means that what is most important here is this. It's all about the bridegroom. It's not about keeping rules. In his answer, Jesus is making it very clear that it is his person and his work. His sovereign, gracious mission is what must be the center stage of all true religion, not their morality. He's the center 
of all true religion. And that fact is inescapable. If those people there in Mark 2 could just grasp the significance of who this Jesus is, then they will understand why it is that, that they should celebrate rather than, rather than fast. If they are going to fast, instead of partying, then Jesus is saying, well, that's showing that you don't accept the bridegroom. You don't accept the person. You don't accept me. They're not accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. They're saying that keeping rules is more important than knowing him. And there's a real irony to this, because though never explicitly described as the bridegroom, often in the Old Testament, which these serious Jews would have known so well, the promised Messiah, the appointed king, the Christ who would come to save his people, is often described as Israel's husband. In places like Isaiah 5 verse 1, Hosea 2 verse 19, and we saw, didn't we, back in the opening verse of Mark's Gospel, that this account concerns Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And while the Son of God is the main category that Mark is demonstrating and proving through his Gospel, nevertheless, this picture of a bridegroom is consistent with the message of Mark's Gospel. It's revealing to us the person of God himself, in and through the Lord Jesus. And so in speaking of a bridegroom... Jesus is quite naturally presuming the right of God himself. So similar to what we saw previously when the paralyzed man was being forgiven his sins, here again we are seeing something of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the role and the mission of God are present in him. Jesus is essentially saying that God is with them. He is present with divine status and divine power and divine authority to call people to follow him, to defeat demonic powers and to forgive sins. But Jesus knows that a time will come when he will be taken away. That's why he says in verse 20, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day, they will fast. On one level, this has to be talking about when Christ is crucified, when he's cut off from the land of the living, as Isaiah 53 verse 8 tells us. He's all too aware of the growing opposition of the religious leaders and that he will be taken from them. But then on another level, this can also allude to when he ascends to the Father. He'll be taken away from them. And that too will be a time of sadness. For though the kingdom of God is coming into the world in the coming of the Lord Jesus, the eternal party of the bridegroom, it still lies in the future. And until then, there will be sadness, there will be pain, there will be struggle. And fasting in those times can be a helpful thing to do. The final victory is not yet realized. And so we must be faithful. We must persevere. That's a message that would have carried such significance to Mark's first Readers in the first century Roman world where Christians were openly persecuted for their faith in Christ. There would be days when it felt as if the Lord was far from them. And in such a context, the discipline of fasting, it aided their watchfulness. It strengthened them in their Christian lives. So, how do we apply that to ourselves in Wales this morning? We're not commanded anywhere in the New Testament to fast. Jesus never once 
directly instructs us to temporarily deny ourselves any food. But the way that Jesus speaks here suggests he expected it, that it would happen among his followers. Indeed, Jesus himself fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And he says here, doesn't he, in verse 20, that a time will come when his disciples will fast. Now, in this context, it seems to suggest that the New Testament Christian fasting is a way of expressing a longing, a way of expressing a desire for the bridegroom, for the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, to return. If you're a Christian this morning, you've come to know this bridegroom for yourself. You love him and you trust him. And fasting can be a means of expressing our hunger for the Lord Jesus Christ to come again in all power and all authority to bring a new age. It's all rooted, isn't it, in the present experienced reality of the Lord Jesus, in all that he's done in history and, we know, in our hearts. Now, this is something which is, on the whole, pretty alien to our current-day Western Christianity. One writer puts it like this, fasting is a way of saying with our stomach and our whole body how much we need and want and trust Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. Food is good, and we don't deny the goodness of God's creation, and he's given us food as a gift, and we thank him for that, and we enjoy that. But this all suggests that we can glorify God when we eat with gratitude, But we can also glorify God when we forfeit it for a short while out of hunger for God himself. So you see, this is what the Lord Jesus is saying. That's what we're seeing in these verses. Jesus is the center of true religion. He is the one we must believe in. The bridegroom has come and we love him for who he is and all he has done for us. Which means that even New Testament fasting as something to engage with is not something that you could think about doing to impress other people. It's not something that you do to impress God. I'm not going to tell you this morning that you've got to fast or how you should fast if you want to do that. Because this is not about rules and the New Testament doesn't directly tell you to do it. And I'm not going to go beyond the Bible and say that. But what I will say is this. Are you living a life which knows you need and want and trust Jesus with all of your very being. That's the point. Jesus is the centre of true religion. Jesus is to be the very centre of your life. And if that is not true for you this morning, then as you live in the already won victory of Jesus... And yet, we're also not yet in the fully realized glories of the life to come. Could it be? Could it be that as Jesus expected his followers to fast, that we too should think about how that could be a part of our Christian lives? I would guess that this topic is not something much of us have thought much about. But here Jesus says, a day will come when his followers will fast. So at the very least, it's something for us to consider this morning, isn't it? And even if you're not convinced of that, and that's okay, that's a conversation we can have, what each of us must ask ourselves is this. Is Jesus Christ first in my life? 
regardless of what you think about fasting. Christian, is the Lord Jesus at the center of your life? Do you really know that you need him? Do you want Jesus? Do you trust wholly in him? I really must stress that the Christian life is not primarily about keeping rules. It is about desiring God above everything else. And what does God command us to do? We've thought about it with the children, haven't we? He says that life is all about loving him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And loving your neighbor as yourself. I wonder what it is the Lord is reminding you of right now. By his spirit, what thing is he prodding you on? That thing you know that you need to deal with. What is he putting his finger on and saying to you, you need to deal with that. Because Jesus the bridegroom is not the center of your life this morning. You love other things more than you love him. Brothers and sisters, whatever that is for you this morning, don't ignore the word of God to you. Let the Lord shape you. Confess your sins to him. Repent of your idolatry, because that's what it is. And commit yourself again this morning to your saviour, Jesus, in all of his wonder and his beauty. Jesus is the centre of true religion. Which means, friends, that for you who won't admit you need Jesus, you don't want Jesus, you don't trust Jesus, you must realise that your life is not about keeping rules. It's not about your level of morality. God is not more impressed with you when you are hungry or when you are forsaking something or when you are doing something that you view to be good. No, the Christian faith, true Christian faith, true life lived in its fullness has Jesus Christ at the very centre. And we must all ask ourselves this morning, friend, is that true of you? And you must ask that question because of the second pictures we find in our passage this morning in verses 21 and 22. Our second point tells us that Jesus' coming changes everything. Jesus' coming changes everything. That is shown in these little parables, in these concluding two verses of our passage, where Jesus is making the point clearer with two common images of the day. The first parable is about patching up your clothes. Jesus says in verse 21, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Now, we live in days where we're fortunate to have quite a few sets of clothes. We might have our favourite shirt or hoodie or pair of jeans. But we've also got a couple of other options too. But in the days of Jesus, it's widely thought that most people might have only had two sets of clothes. And so if one of them is starting to get some holes in, well, then that is an issue. So you need to know how to patch those holes up. Maybe you're someone who still does this, or you used to do it, or you remember your parents or grandparents doing this. You wanted to make everything last as long as it could. I wouldn't know where to start. So don't ask me about these things. I was no, no good at textiles when I was in school. But here we are told that in those days... It was known. Everybody knew. You'd never take your own well-worn coat and patch up that hole with a brand new piece of cloth that had not been shrunk. If you did, then you'd end up with a bigger hole than you had before. Because if you put that patch on and then you washed it, the patch would shrink and it would cause a great tear. It would tear it away and the clothes you were trying to patch up would just be worse than before. But then there's a, another parable. Another picture for us. Jesus talks about wineskins. They were leather bags, not the kind of luxury handbag type. 
but it was what was used in those days to keep drinkable water in. So imagine someone's giving you some, some fresh new wine, it's still fermenting, it's still bubbling away, and there's all these gas bubbles coming out of it. Well, what would you do with it? What would you keep it in? And Jesus says in verse 22, No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Again, Jesus knows that everyone listening to him knows that. You wouldn't put new wine into an old wineskin that was, it was stiff and well used and it was on the point of cracking because that would end up with the wine breaking the bag, going all over the floor and then both the wine and the wineskin, they're good for nothing. So what's the purpose of these pictures? Well, Jesus is not giving us some top tips on being household domestics. No, he's doubling down on what he has already said. Both of these little parables communicate to us something of the finality of the patch and the wine. Something once useful is now no longer of any worth. Because in the coming of Jesus, a new age has begun. The new patch and the new wine are incompatible with the old cloth and the old wineskins. And the point is this, Jesus is coming changes everything. Jesus is the new patch. Jesus is the new wine. Jesus is not an attachment. He is not an addition to the religious status quo. Jesus cannot be contained by the traditions and the structures of these Pharisees and their Judaism. This is the radical position of Jesus Christ. As one writer says, Jesus is saying, you can't fit him into your religious box. He doesn't match up to your old rule-bound religion. You need a new set of clothes, a new set of wineskins to put the new wine in. Imagine how radical this must have sounded to those there that day. Jesus comes and he fulfills the law. He goes to the synagogues with a new teaching. His authority is greater than all the scribes and he doesn't let the laws and the traditions get in the way of what it is he's come to do. In his coming, a new age begins. Jesus' coming changes everything. And the Pharisees there that day, and throughout Mark's gospel, they failed to grasp this. They simply saw him as another teacher who was just out of line with the rest of them. And sadly, lots of people today see Jesus in a similar way. They might admit Jesus offers some positive values, but some of the more radical things are a bit out of step. Okay, he broke down some prejudices, but at best, let's just put Jesus in with the words of Muhammad and Gandhi and Buddha. They're wise words worth thinking about, but nothing more than that. But friends, that is not who Jesus is. Here he's making clear to us that his coming changes everything. Jesus is unique. He has all authority and all power to do that, which nobody else ever could, because he's God in the flesh. What we're seeing here this morning, friends, is that the way of man-made traditions and the good news of the gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ, they cannot be harmonized. They are complete opposites. They can't ever go together. They're incompatible. The teaching of Jesus, of grace and forgiveness for sinners, as we've seen, as we read earlier, with the paralyzed man and with uh, Levi and his tax collector friends, it absolutely destroys the old ways. And the old clothes of the Pharisees, the old wineskins of their religion, 
It's burst open by Jesus. Ultimately, that's because their religion depended on their contribution to make salvation possible. And because of our hearts that naturally turn away from God, that is how all of us live in this world. Naturally, we live by some set of rules, even if we bizarrely determine what those rules should be. And then if we have any sense of there being a higher power out there, then you think that if you can keep those rules, then God will somehow be pleased with you. That's what the Pharisees were doing in the days of Jesus. They had their rules. They had hundreds of them written down. And their lives were all about keeping that list. And there are millions of people across the world who are doing that this morning. The other religions of the world will tell you how many times you should pray, where you should go on a pilgrimage to a special site, how much money you should give away, what you should say, what you should do. And on the list goes. And if you do all those things... They tell you that God will be pleased with you. And maybe you're one of those people. You come to this church. You take communion. You're very respectable. And you're a nice person. You say the right things. You give to charity. You keep to the rules as best as you can. And when all is said and done, you think that you'll be okay in God's sight. He'll understand. But friends, that is such a contrast to what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen this morning that he is the very centre of true religion. And that his coming changes everything. And this might sound a bit harsh, a bit radical, a bit exclusive to you. But that is because Jesus preached grace. He says that forgiveness is free. And that we cannot earn any favour through what we do. The good news of Jesus Christ begins and ends with God. The gospel is all about him. Christianity is unique because it is all about what God has done, not what you can do. The saving message that he preached and he embodied, it depends entirely on God. And here in these verses this morning, as well as with the calling of Levi last week, we've seen so clearly that God does not choose to save anyone because they're good. He doesn't save anyone because of their goodness. Levi was an outcast. He was a traitor in the eyes of many, and yet Jesus called him to follow him. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian here this morning, then you know this. You know you've been graciously called by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've got to make sure that we don't slip back into this old way of rule-keeping. We must not slip into thinking that we keep up our salvation If we do what God says, such legalism is completely incompatible with the grace of Jesus Christ. We don't believe in Jesus plus something else. The good news of the gospel is not only for someone who's yet to trust in Jesus as a way to get to heaven, although, of course, that is an important part of it. The good news of God's undeserved kindness to us through the coming and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that what all of us need most of all is the grace of the Lord Jesus. Day by day by day, the gospel tells us that you are a great sinner, a greater sinner than you ever thought you were, but you're also more loved than you could ever imagine. And that's a wonderful encouragement to you, Christian, to go on this week in personal growth, in love and obedience. 
friends, as we close this morning, we really are confronted with this radical way of, of understanding the world, of understanding ourselves. Jesus has underlined for us in these pictures the difference between the free grace of God and the burdensome traditions of man-made religion. And those there that day, they had a choice. And we too this morning are faced with that same choice. Will we live by man's ways or God's ways? Which will it be? Will we live by what we think? Or will we live by what God, the maker of the universe, the only one who can save you, what he says? You can't have both. It is either one or the other. And so the question I want to leave you this morning is, will you come and accept this new message that the Lord Jesus Christ brought? The message that is all about him. Will you come and join the wedding celebration? Will you entrust your life to the bridegroom, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the one who's died on a cross and has risen again for people just like you? Just like me, will you confess your sins and your great need of him? Stop trying to prove yourself and come and enjoy the grace of God available in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that this morning, won't you? Because he and he alone is the center of true religion. Because his coming has changed everything forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the good news of grace available to us in him this morning. Please forgive us for ever thinking that we could prove ourselves to you through trying to be good. We confess that no amount of good works or tradition would ever be enough. And so we pray for help to look to Jesus this morning, the bridegroom, and to totally trust ourselves to him this week. Help us to love him, to trust him, to want him more than any other. Please would you forgive us our many sins and help us to entrust ourselves to you again this morning, thanking you for your grace, for your undeserved kindness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.